Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the discipline of jiu-jitsu, when an opponent strikes you, his aggression is understood as an opportunity to use his power against him. A similar principle is found in the Bible with a slight twist. Throughout the Old Testament, the Lord uses the aggression of Israel's enemies as an opportunity to use the enemy's power against Israel for the sake of Israel's instruction, so that through the application of this instruction, both Israel and the enemy can be saved. This template is applied forcefully in Mark chapter 15. Even as Jesus is besieged by violence and corruption from all sides, Mark demonstrates how Israel, represented by Simon of Cyrene, the one who hears the Torah, is only able to walk according to its instruction when forced to do so by the Romans. Put another way, in Mark, Israel needs the nations in order to fulfill the commandment of the law. Sound familiar? If not, please take note and reread all of St. Paul's letters several times. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 16 to 21. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 206 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we spent a lot of time, Richard, talking about power dynamics in the gospel and about the negative role of the mob. And I think it's worth noting for our listeners that this is an important cautionary tale for our society which is built on the idea that what the people want is a necessary good. A philosopher would say is ontologically good, meaning that in its essence, it's a good thing. But we don't go for ontology on the Bible as Literature podcast. Everything is functional, meaning whatever a thing is, its value isn't what it is. Its value is how it operates and how it's used. Well, you and I were talking earlier today about the United States democracy, which is the people as a counterbalance against the president or against the power, against the king. And what's significant here is you have this collusion we talked about last time between the people and the state. It's very interesting. If you look at the details, Pilate offers to give up a prisoner. Why? So that the crowd is easier on him. He uses the people as a check against his power. Great. So who do they choose? They choose a revolutionary who is a murderer, Barabbas. And who is he a revolutionary against? He was against the state, against Pilate. There's this balance of power where Pilate needs to 
satisfy the mobs. And so the mob selects who they want, but the one that they get from the government is the one who's against the government. The one who's offering to give them what they want. And what do they take? They take the thing that's going to destroy the very system that gives them what they want. And of course, you have the religious leaders and the political leaders in Jerusalem who have all fallen prey to Stockholm Syndrome and who are cozying up to Rome. But the tragedy of that relationship is that if Pilate were to ever show weakness to them, they would happily stick a knife in his back. It's truly a den of thieves and criminals surrounding Jesus. No one is trustworthy. You can't trust the religious institutions. You can't trust the occupying power. And you can't trust the mob. And what you have as a result of this tension is more tension. We tend to think that when you have this balance of power of the people versus the government, that something good will come of it. Here, what did it come up with? It came up with Barabbas as the one who is freed and the death of Jesus. So what is the good that comes of the balance of power between the people's power and the king's power? More murder, more insurrection, and more rebellion, and more pain and suffering. And one has to remember that Roman society was undergoing a very subversive transition at this point from a society that was rigorously community-oriented in its tribalism, loyalty to clan, loyalty to the republic, all around a constitution. So before the rise of Julius Caesar and the cult of the emperor, Rome was governed and sustained by a kind of virile dedication in the tribal system to the hegemony of the constitution of the republic. At this point in Roman history, all of this had come under question and Roman society was devolving. So in the absence of law, in the absence of a text put in place to sustain all of these relationships and to maintain order, all you were left with was the ego of the mob, the ego of the religious institution, and the ego of the state. And in the middle of all this, who are they assaulting? Jesus Christ, who is the bringer of the law. And I think this is important to emphasize because there's a reason in the end that Roman society latched on to the teaching that Jesus carried to this moment in the gospel. Because that kind of chaos, that kind of brutality, which will ultimately lead, as we'll see very soon, to the abuse of Jesus in the public square, that kind of cruelty is unsustainable because people get sick of it. So in a sense, the gospel was in the right place at the right time to take root in Roman society and transform the world in late antiquity. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. Here we have the one bringing the law of Moses to the Roman Empire being brought before the court of Caesar. Again, Caesar's not present, but it doesn't matter. It's functional. It's his seat. It's his authority. And we have Jesus who has been avoiding going inside, avoiding houses, 
avoiding cities, and now he's drug against his will into this cohort, into this court, and this is the split where the Romans offered Barabbas versus Jesus, so now they had to deliver the one that was not given back to the people. They had to deliver him up to be killed. It reminds me even of the sacrifice of the goats on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus, where you had the two goats, and the one you sent off into the wilderness, and the other one you sacrificed. The one Barabbas goes out to the people, and then this is the one who's ultimately going to be sacrificed. And of course, as we said last week, they want Bar Abbas, the son of their father, I'm putting there in quotation marks, because he's the father that they choose, not their father in the heavens, the father of Jesus. The problem with him is that he is a champion and a hero and functionally a god for the people in the same way that Julius Caesar was a god for the people when he marched in victory into Rome with his own bust in procession. You're making a hero out of the human ego. You're making your deity out of the human ego. That has to be always in the forefront of your mind. These are powerful symbolic choices that are being made by the mob. I love the image that you brought up, Father, of the bust, because here we have Jesus being led into the praetorium, and they call the entire Roman cohort to come and stand before him, even though he is the one who is understood to be weak, but as you say, is the bringer of the law. When you are in the midst of the praetorium, and the entire Roman cohort is standing around you, functionally, you occupy the central space of the Roman cohort. So this reversal that's happening where we take this one who is weak and place them in the center of Rome, so to speak, in this metaphorical Rome here in the Praetorium, it's significant how Mark put Jesus in the center of the Roman cohort because that makes him the center of the Roman cohort functionally. He controls the whole situation, as we've said many times. He looks to you like a weakling. But he's the most important person in the whole scene, not because he marched in with trumpets carrying his effigy, but because he only submits to the will of his father. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again, strangely, they're acting like he is a king. Why would they be doing this? Mark is making a point that Jesus is the un-king, the non-king. He is an image of a king, but not in the way that we understand what kings are. This, if you think about it, is a completely unnecessary scene. If they want to mock him, they can spit on him. If they want to humiliate him, they could just crucify him. That's not enough. But for some reason, the author of Mark wants to make him into this un-king. And another thing that you and I were discussing before, Father, is how here he's saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And the only time we heard Jesus spoken of with this kind of language is when Legion the demon legion, and remember we spoke a lot about that being a representation of the Roman legion, is calling him son of the most high. So the only people who are praising Jesus correctly 
are the legion of demons who actually recognize his power and know who he is, and then these Romans who don't understand who he is and are accidentally calling him the king of the Jews, which none of the Jews actually said. So Mark is using this position as the center of Roman power, placing Jesus in there and making him the un-king. Mark is teaching the people of Israel the meaning of the prophetic tradition. Because when the foreign king attacks Jerusalem or threatens to attack Jerusalem, Ahaz shakes in his boots because he doesn't trust in the Lord because he's another type of Bar Abbas or Julius Caesar. They're all the same character functionally. They trust in their own biceps or in the biceps of a foreign power. But the prophetic tradition is teaching us that any power that's manifest on earth is the will of God the Father. And ultimately, he's unique as a father because he will destroy his own city. And so in that sense, you should fear him, the father who scolds you even unto difficult destruction. You should fear him more than the tyrant. I love that you use the image of the bicep because the image in Torah of God's power is his outstretched arm. The power of the outstretched arm of the Lord is what set them free from Egypt. It's not a bicep that Caesar flexes, but the powerful arm of the Lord that sets the slaves free from Egypt. There's been discussion lately about the Lord's Prayer and how a good God would never lead his children into temptation. There's been discussion about potentially changing the translation. This is illiterate, and it's the consequence of the imposition of theology upon the story. Because the statue of God you built in your head doesn't fit with the biblical God. In scripture, God definitely leads his children into temptation. And by temptation, we've explained this on the podcast, it's not the pietistic struggle with personal sin. It's leading you to the day of the examination and of judgment, which is the whole movement of the canon is towards judgment. It's the DNA of scripture. And in any case, there are ample examples in the biblical story of God putting you in situations in order to cause you to stumble, beginning with Genesis. When God led Joseph into Egypt, where they would eventually become enslaved, so that he would eventually free them and give them the law, this is the big transition point. But it could not have functioned if Joseph had not been led into Egypt. There is a bigger play going on in all of these stories that we can presume to understand a single sentence based on the, as you say, statue inside our own head. We don't understand the biblical function of fatherhood, which has nothing to do with gender. It's just a function. We don't understand how God functions as a father because we don't like it. We refuse to understand. But I keep referring to Psalm 2 because it's all there in Psalm 2. God is the biggest bully on the block, so why are you afraid of the king of Assyria? Jesus knows that God is tougher than the emperor of Rome, which is why he only fears his father. So this contrast between Jesus and Ahaz is highly functional in Mark. 
And this is something unique to scripture because it's the only tradition in which the protagonist, the deity, destroys his own city. So in a way, the Romans are acting on God's behalf against Jerusalem, which is why they're naming him the king of the Jews. They're naming their target. People keep misunderstanding functionality. If at the inauguration of the president of the United States, you said, oh, we want to make sure he's a good king, so let's dress him up in purple and put a crown of thorns on his head, and then we can understand that he's a meek and mild king just like Jesus. It doesn't work that way. The fact that Jesus is placed in the center is not what gives him power. Mark has already instilled the character of Jesus with power so that when he goes into the praetorium, he is de facto the one with power within the story that Mark has set up. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. When you understand the function of Jesus, we'll use that word again, Richard. When you understand how Jesus is operating, he functions as Jerusalem. He functions as the temple. He functions as the one on David's throne. That's how he functions in this situation. On the one hand, their mockery of Jesus is the power of the Lord manifest against Jerusalem, his mockery of his own city and his own people, his scolding of them for their edification. That's the classic paradigm in the Old Testament. But on the other end, he also functions insofar as he is the one carrying the Torah to the nations, he functions as a stand-in for the very thing that everyone rejects, which is the will of God. They are mocking scripture. They are mocking the teaching. They are mocking his submission to his father. And this is what God asked of Israel in the Old Testament. Just trust me. Be faithful to me. Even if I strike you with a foreign king, because then everyone will know that I'm the Lord and there will be hope. But if you're thinking about your own interests, Israel, against the nations, you can never do what Jesus is doing here, which is ministering not only to his own people who have turned against him, but to the Romans. It just struck me how they're saying all this king of the Jews, king of the Jews, king of the Jews about Jesus, but no one ever said this about Barabbas. Why would Pilate ascribe king of the Jews to Jesus and Jesus alone? And then these grunt soldiers who are mistreating Jesus somehow took that on too. The legion in chapter 5 of Mark, the demons called legion, call him Jesus, son of the most high. And then these Romans from Pilate all the way down are calling him king of the Jews. What is it about him in the way that they're understanding him. Now, I don't want to psychologize. As readers, we don't put ourselves in the heads of characters. All we can do is look to see the syntax of the story itself. But Jesus is placed there as king of the Jews, and we take it for granted that whoever they put there would be king of the Jews. No, Jesus functions as king of the Jews, as the one who brings the law to the people, and now he brings it to the Gentiles, and he's recognized as the unking to the Jews, as well as the unking to the Gentiles. And just to be clear, the function of the Messiah in the biblical tradition is to gather the people to the Lord's mountain 
to submit to the will of the Torah. You have to keep this front of mind. And again, because of our various theologies, this is lost on us. Because people try to reconcile whether or not they should follow the Levitical code and be a Christian. Well, didn't Paul say we don't need the Levitical code? No, he didn't say that. He said, you're not Jewish, so you can eat bacon. What's the big deal? But just because you can eat bacon does not mean that the law is invalid. The law had a function in a particular context in the story, and its function is still applicable. So difficult for people to understand this, because the human mind just wants to be excused. But Paul's teaching of grace does not excuse the human being. So please, just bear this in mind. Jesus is bringing Leviticus to the Romans. And if you're a Christian who dismisses Leviticus, you're not a follower of Jesus or Deuteronomy or Exodus or whatever. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. And of course, crucifixion was a powerful tool for the Roman Empire. It was the way that it expressed its glory and its majesty where they would conquer a town and they would crucify thousands so that those entering in the town would know that Caesar was Lord. This was the language of late antiquity. It's the language of the biblical tradition, except we know that Caesar's not Lord because it's the Lord who always claims the glory from these human debacles in order to help us understand things correctly so that there would be no future debacles. I find it interesting the way that the clothes are put on and the clothes are taken off. The Lord is king, he is robed in majesty. This idea of crowning the king, of inaugurating the kingdom by putting this clothing on, they put it on so they can bow down and then they take it off and put his old clothes on. Why don't they just crucify him in these clothes? These details, you could just say, oh, well, it's just what they did. It's not just what they did, because none of it is necessary. Mark had, I'm sure, plenty of other things he could be doing with his time than supplying us with useless details. So let's assume they're useful details. Remember, the person who wrote Mark didn't write Star Wars Episode Eight. <laughs> there are no useless plot lines <laughs> in the Gospel of Mark. That's the first and the last thing either Richard or I will say about Star Wars Episode Eight. <laughs> Moving right along. Moving right along. <laughs> so they put the clothes on him, and it's not a stretch to say that Mark would have known this line from the Psalter and has this in mind when writing. Whether he has it in mind or not, as the reader, I can't help but make the connection within the biblical canon. It's there. And so, again, it's a way of showing that the Lord's reign is beginning, but it has to blow your mind when you think of what it means for a king to reign. A king to reign in your mind is that he cannot be defeated, but the Lord will be defeated when he allows himself to be defeated. This means that God is beyond conquering and being conquered in your mind. You can't put him in a box. You can't decide what your king is going to look like and say, aha, Jesus is the one. No, Mark 
explodes this idea. The Lord is robed. He is girded with strength. Which robe and which kind of strength is the psalmist talking about? That's the question Mark poses in this changing of garments. Barabbas had strength, but no change of clothes. Functionality. So here, how is Jesus functioning? And what signal does his garb send about his function? Mark is playing with images. He's messing with the mind of the reader. It's almost as though the Romans can't bear to see an actual king shamed, so they have to put his regular clothes back on him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Now, bearing his cross is something we've come across before. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to bear your cross. You have to be willing to give up your own life and consider your own life dead. And it's interesting that no one actually took him up on this, but only one who was compelled to do it by the Romans did it. If we want to push this one level, metaphorically, the power of Rome forces the Christian to be a true Christian, the one who professes to actually have to walk the talk. And walking the talk is, in fact, holding a cross and walking along the road with this cross. And so Simon, who in Hebrew comes from Shema, which means hear, the one who hears is the one who carries the cross. But strangely, the Romans have to force him to do this. It would be nice if Simon, the hearer, were willing to just pick up his cross and follow Jesus, but the power of Rome forces him to. There's this pressure that the kingdom of this earth places on the one who hears Jesus's message, and then you can react to it by choosing to carry your cross or not. But the only way you're going to carry a cross is if the government, if the powers of this world force you to. And this is why the North American is going to have a very difficult time, or as others have said, an impossible time entering the kingdom of heaven. Because there is no pressure. Right. The American Christian has no pressure. We're worried about the war on Christmas. The war on Christmas that says, oh, is it okay to say Merry Christmas or not? Instead of the government saying, okay, you're going to die. Somehow, in the American's mind, we make ourselves martyrs because we say Merry Christmas in a retail store. This is how we express our martyrdom. This is how we pick up our cross. This is what people feel sorry about themselves it's, for. Without the government placing actual pressure on you, you can't be Christian. If there's a threat against your livelihood or against your life, then we're talking about persecution. Short of a threat against your livelihood or a threat against your life, you're not under the pressure of the gospel. This is the whole point of the Bible. It's co-opting the forces in life that work against you in order to instruct you and pressure you to act correctly. So that sermon you recently heard about how it's important to do something from your heart it's anti-scriptural. It doesn't matter what Simon of Cyrene feels or thinks. His behavior is correct. He's being forced to walk on a certain path, which is correct. That's why trying to figure out how you feel and what happened to you and who hurt you and what all the reasons are and blah, 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 is just blah, blah, blah. 
The only thing that matters is what you're doing right now. And if you need someone else to pressure you to do it, and if you're a human being, that's probably the case almost always when you don't want to do something, praise the Lord. Scripture doesn't suggest action to you. It doesn't advise you. It doesn't encourage you. It directs you. It tells you what to do. Nobody likes being told what to do. But to the extent that scripture understands the corruption of the individual, its premise is commandment. And that's why modern Christianity, whatever denomination, by saying modern Christianity, I'm not saying that one is better than the other. Because modern means anyone living in 2017, soon to be 2018. The problem with modern Christianity is you're dealing with a group of people in the modern world who don't think that anyone has the right to tell them what to do. Scripture is predicated on commandment. And its chief mechanism is pressure to act. I can't stress this enough. If you feel good after the sermon, he wasn't talking about the Bible. The sermon, if it's uplifting, is not scriptural. You should hear the sermon, which is merely an invitation to hear the reading. The sermon is irrelevant, ultimately. But if the sermon performs its function and you hear the reading, you should leave the church knowing you've fallen short and feeling pressure to improve the way you act between now and the next time you hear the reading. That is Christianity. That is the function of monotheism. There is one God and his will is clearly inscribed in a sacred text and you have to submit to it and you have to always know that you fall short. That's it. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.